Good morning, and welcome to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. We're your hosts, Elliot Simpson and Annabelle McRae. Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussions more accessible to you. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news, bringing you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting at Beyond Headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. Welcome to the programme. The British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, facing huge political pressure, has admitted that he was at a party in the Garden of Downing Street, or gathering at least during the first lockdown in May 2020, but he claimed it was a work event. At the time of the gathering in May 2020, people across the UK... I know that millions of people across this country have made extraordinary sacrifices over the last 18 months. I know the anguish that they have been through unable to mourn their relatives, unable to live their lives as they want or to do the things they love. And I know the rage they feel with me and with the government I lead when they think that in Downing Street itself the rules are not being properly followed by the people who make the rules. Well, there we have it. After months of deceit and deception, the pathetic spectacle of a man who's run out of road. His defence, his defence, that he didn't realise he was at a party. (laughs) It's so ridiculous that it's actually offensive to the British public. He's finally been forced to admit what everyone knew. Will the Prime Minister finally do the decent thing and resign? or will his Tory MPs be forced to show him the door? Will the Prime Minister, for the good of the country, accept that the party is over and decide to resign? You have sat there too long for all the good you have done. In the name of God, go. You have sat there too long for all the good you have done. In the name of God, go. These words have been spoken several times in the history of British politics, but always in a time of crisis. Most recently, as you heard, they were said by David Davis, the former Brexit secretary and longtime Conservative MP. Directed at the leader of his party and the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, Mr. Davis echoes the mood of many throughout the UK across the political spectrum. It has been a busy few months in British politics, with scandals ranging from illegal lobbying to misused finances the now infamous series of parties held at the Prime Minister's residence of Number 10 Downing Street during COVID lockdown. While police investigations into these parties are ongoing, the Prime Minister and his supporters are attempting to distance themselves from this most recent round of scandals as much as they can. While the Conservatives are divided, Labour, invigorated by new leadership and a more centrist agenda, seems primed to capitalize on this latest round of missteps by the Prime Minister. Amidst all this, three out of four Britons polled have a negative view of the state of British politics. So today, we'll speak to two experts to get their views about how things stand across the British political spectrum and where they're likely to go. 
Now joining us to give his view on the state of the British Conservatives is Sir Graham Watson. Sir Graham Watson was born in March 1956 on the Scottish Isle of Bute. After an honours degree in modern languages from Harry Watt University in Edinburgh, his political career started in the 1970s with the Scottish Young Liberals. After seven years in international banking, he became the first UK Liberal ever to be elected to the European Parliament in 1994. He served as chairman of the Parliament's Committee on Citizens' Rights and Freedoms and Justice and Home Affairs from 1999 to 2002 and as leader of the Parliament's Liberal, ELDR, later ALDE group, from 2002 to 2009. Under his leadership, it became the largest third party ever in the European Parliament. In 2010, his 10th book, Building a Liberal Europe, was published by John Harper Publishing, and in 2011 he was knighted in the Queen's Birthday Honours List. Sir Graham Watson was elected president of the ALDE party in 2011, and served until December 2015, stepping down to concentrate his energies on the UK's EU referendum. He offers services in global political advocacy through his own company, Badgett Limited. We reached him earlier this week in Brussels. So, uh, Sir Graham, thank you for joining us. Good to be with you. So before we get into what's next, I, I think it might be useful to look at what's happened so far. We, we won't go back as far as Brexit, but maybe as far back as uh, July 2019, where Boris Johnson becomes head of the Conservative Party and therefore Prime Minister. And then in December 2019, Boris and the Conservatives win a massive majority in the general election, taking many seats that were considered safely Labour, smashing through that supposed red wall. Uh, COVID-19 along, uh, comes along then and with it a series of scandals. Uh, if, if we talked about all of them, we'd be here for ages. So let's just start with two in particular. First, the lobbying scandal with Owen Patterson and then Partygate. So in your own words, what, what happened here? Well, uh, Owen Patterson, who is a, a long-standing Conservative MP, seen as being one of the Prime Minister's uh, allies, uh, was involved in this lobbying scandal. Uh, undue use of his influence uh, for pecuniary gain. Uh, and the Prime Minister would normally, in those circumstances, have sacked the member concerned. Uh, he failed to do so. He stood behind him, uh, allowing this uh, idea of sleaze to engulf his own party. Now, of course, you have to remember that the Tory party was engulfed in sleaze uh, a few years back, uh, and that led to or contributed to Tony Blair's victory at the polls uh, in 1997. Uh, so for the Tories to have this kind of thing resurface uh, is doubly damaging, I would say. And then um, to, to bring us to, to Partygate, because that, that all began surfacing shortly afterwards. Yeah, well, what uh, really, I think, started as a kind of bushfire, if you like, uh, in the, the, the Tory heartlands uh, with the Owen Patterson saga, uh, then led to other uh, examples of the government not playing by the rules. And in particular, uh, it led to revelations quite possibly coming uh, from uh, Dominic Cummings, a close advisor to the Prime Minister who was very publicly sacked by him, um, about uh, parties having taken place 
at which there was uh, no social distancing, uh, use of a lot of alcohol and so on uh, within top government circles at a time when everybody else had been told not to have uh, more than the immediate family members in their homes, uh, not to socialize in this way because of the danger of the spread of COVID. So with one hand, the government was giving out advice, in some cases, setting laws as to what people could or could not do. And at the same time, senior government representatives were blatantly ignoring those rules themselves. What, what I found especially shocking about that story was that uh, Boris Johnson himself had a particularly bad case of COVID and spent a few nights in the ICU. So I know it's always sort of dangerous to, to guess at what's in someone's mind, but in order to look at sort of what led him to let this happen, um, is it just simply a case that he wasn't on the ball, that it was planned by someone else and he just showed up? Uh, you know, I'm sure everyone's wondering what was essentially going through his mind at that time, especially considering his own experience with COVID? Well, of course, nobody knows, but Boris Johnson has a reputation for believing that he can be above the law. Um, there were examples of it while he was mayor of London. There were examples of it while he was foreign secretary. Now, in those positions, one might perhaps get away with it. But when one is prime minister, it is very different. And if there's one thing that really upsets the English, it is the idea that there is one law for the wealthy and powerful uh, and another law for everyone else. So while people in many other countries were looking at the United Kingdom saying, well, what's all this fuss about? You know, the chap had a couple of parties uh, in number 10 Downing Street. That plays very, very badly with the English sense of fair play. Now, one of one of his defenses, now he, he hasn't sort of outwardly defended uh, the fact that he was at these parties and that his staff held these parties. I mean, he, he, he has said many times that he's very proud of his staff and so on, especially for the way that they handled the vaccine rollout. And granted, the rollout of vaccines across the UK has been done. Most would agree that it's been done quite well. And so it really seems like they're leaning on their performance in that and the fact that the British economy is coming out relatively strong from COVID. How long do you think that will last? Because that, that defense just seems like a deflection. Well, the, the, the vaccine rollout certainly is considered generally to have been a success, but some of the policies behind it have been very much criticised by medical professionals and others. There is certainly one wing of the government, and for a while Boris Johnson appeared to uh, be of that wing, which argued in favour of herd um, uh, uh, immunity. In other words, let the... the, 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 the let, let, let the disease spread, uh, more and more people will become immune to it and you'll get it over and done with sooner. Um, that was very strongly challenged and Boris Johnson had to row back from his position. But there's been no consistency of policy in terms of advice to the public throughout the COVID um, epidemic. And I think that in itself has damaged the Prime Minister. The damage that comes from his own disrespect for the rules and the way in which his staff um, failed to respect the rules is additional to the way in which people perceived that the government didn't really have a handle 
on control uh, of the spread of this disease. And surely, I mean, you can make the argument that it's it's not a stretch to say that if they didn't have control over the spread of the disease, then, you know, how could Boris Johnson control his own staff? And, you know, he, he has said several times, ranging from I didn't know that there was a party to it wasn't my party and so on. And so that that sort of seems to reinforce that that sort of lack that lack of agency might be or his his supposed lack of agency in these scandals might might extend to lack of agency running the country. Um, I, I think. There is certainly that point. Um, it's seen particularly uh, as a failure to take responsibility, I think, uh, within 10 Downing Street. Now, you mentioned that, that one thing that English voters seem to, seem to uh, particularly hate is, you know, one, one rule for them, another rule for us. Do you think this extends to Wales, Northern Ireland, Scotland? I think the culture uh, in Wales and Scotland and Northern Ireland is somewhat different. And if you look at the way in which the devolved administrations, that's the governments of those three uh, provinces, uh, handled COVID, all of their leaders have come out of this rather better than Boris Johnson has. Now, I'm not sure that in reality, uh, the response of the authorities in the four component parts of the United Kingdom has been very different. But Nicola Sturgeon in Scotland and Mark Drakeford in Wales have given the impression of being more in control and taking the whole issue rather more seriously uh, than has Boris Johnson. And, you know, that adds to an impression that a number of people already had of him when he became prime minister, that he is a showman. Uh, he is somebody who can be very entertaining, sometimes very charming, uh, but who is not necessarily uh, one to stand up to face the responsibilities uh, that he has to exercise when things get tough. Yes, one one particularly uh, good analysis of Boris Johnson that I've seen is that he he's very keen on being liked, and so whatever he can do to be liked is is, is what he will do. I think that's right. I think at a time of national crisis, people want to see the steel uh, in a person, a person who's prepared to take decisions that are not necessarily popular, uh, and I think they failed to find that in Boris Johnson in these months. And you have to remember, of course, that the number of cases of COVID in the United Kingdom was vastly higher than it was in many uh, other European countries. Uh, so our record of coping uh, was seen as being poor compared to what was happening, let us say, in Germany or in Belgium or in the Netherlands. It's, it's especially interesting considering Boris Johnson's idol. He, he keeps a bust of Winston Churchill on prominent display. So when, when we began planning this episode a month or so ago, we, we thought that this week would be good for an interview because surely something would have happened by now. Uh, surely there might have been a vote of no confidence or surely there, there might be a new leader of the Conservative Party. Is, is it surprising to you that nothing has? Oh, indeed. I think many people are surprised that he survived even up till Christmas. Um, reports of his demise were widespread before then. And there are no shortage of people wishing to bring him down. Um, and amazingly, Houdini-like, he managed to escape every possible 
uh, trap that he was put in. And as so often in these uh, matters, uh, having escaped them, all he needed was for something else to turn up to take public attention away from the pandemic. Uh, and he was, in a sense, in the clear. Uh, and I think what has happened uh, in the Ukraine has very much put him back in charge, in the driving seat, weakened, certainly, uh, with big question marks over his future. But he's come through it. And in politics, that's half the battle. Some, some of the analysis that I've seen show that, uh, or seems to think that a lot of the conservatives and a lot of the conservative MPs might be waiting for the local elections in the UK, which are, I think, meant to be held on the 5th of May of, of this year, to see if, if the conservatives do particularly poorly in those elections, then, then and only then will they vote to replace Boris Johnson as leader. But surely that seems politically opportunistic and that the British public would pick up on that as being opportunistic. Well, well, the way in which these things work in the Conservative Party is that uh, if a member of parliament loses confidence in the leader of that party, whether the leader is in office as prime minister or, or whether he or she is leader of the opposition, then they write a letter to the chief whip uh, asking for uh, a leadership contest. Uh, and once the chief whip has received a certain number of letters, it's a percentage of the members of the parliamentary party, in this case I think it's 43 letters are required, then uh, when the opportunity arises every year, a leadership contest has to be held. And it is said that the chief whip is holding uh, quite a large number of letters from members uh, of parliament for the Conservative Party. Uh, it will not take many more, perhaps, uh, to force a, uh, a leadership contest. And all eyes are, as you say, uh, on the first Thursday in May, uh, when the local elections will be held, and when the Tory party is widely expected to get a drubbing. If a vote of no confidence were to be called, then who would be your favorite, do you think? I've, 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 heard, I've heard about two particular front runners, that being Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, and then Liz Truss, the new Foreign Secretary. I think one of the things that works in Boris Johnson's favor uh, is that in a party which is very, very fractured at the moment, uh, there is a camp in favor of Rishi Sunak, uh, to succeed him. There is a camp in favour of Liz Trust, but none of these camps commands a majority. Uh, there are others who might be uh, in the picture too. Um, if the members of parliament were to recognise that a change of policy was needed, they might go for somebody like Jeremy Hunt, former culture secretary, uh, holder of other ministerial offices, widely liked and widely seen as a centrist. Uh, Sunak and Truss are both, in policy terms, pretty much along the same lines as Boris Johnson. And I think most people uh, would recognise that a change of leader of the Conservative Party is not necessarily going to lead to a change in public policy. And it's public policy that is making the Conservatives unpopular. Recent tax rises, recent changes to... Uh, other aspects of legislation, the downsides of Brexit and so on, 
have led to a situation where the Conservative Party is now at least five points behind the Labour Party in the opinion polls. There was not a single opinion poll in February uh, that had a narrower margin than that. Uh, that's the danger for the Conservatives. And it's perhaps what makes it more likely that the election will come later rather than sooner. And then who would you like? I, I, I know you're not a conservative, but if you were, who, who would you like to see as the leader of the Conservative Party if they were still to be prime minister? Well, personally, I think that Rishi Sunak would command rather more credibility uh, than Liz Truss. But then I personally, as a Liberal Democrat, would like somebody who is likely to seek to heal divides in the country rather than to pour salt into the wounds. And that would suggest uh, somebody like Jeremy Hunt uh, or somebody of a senior uh, command within the party. Many of these people are not even currently in the cabinet because the cabinet is full of people who will swear fealty to the prime minister come what may. That doesn't always make for good government. Yes, and there there is definitely a, a difference in being good at getting elected and then good at running the government. I, I saw while researching this episode that uh, by 2024, in the next scheduled election, it will have been 106 years since universal male suffrage existed in Britain, that the Conservatives have been in power for a shocking 68% of this past uh, century and a bit, in this past 106 years. So they do seem to be particularly good at winning elections, but do you think that they will rise to the, to the occasion here, that they'll rise above these recent uh, particularly poor poll showings? Because some, some of those seats that they won, you know, they broke through that supposed red wall. Ideologically speaking, they, they don't really have any business running those seats, do they? No, it's uh, been quite surprising to many that they've held on to those seats for so long. Um, and in many cases, of course, it has been due to the presence of an anti-European party. Uh, initially, in, up until 2017, it was the United Kingdom Independence Party. They changed their name and became the Brexit Party. They have taken so many votes away from Labour that the Conservatives have been able to hold the seat. At the same time, the Conservatives have been losing seats in by-elections in what some people call the blue wall, uh, the area in the Midlands or the south of England where the Conservatives have traditionally been stronger. They lost two by-elections last year to the Liberal Democrats on very, very substantial swings of the vote. So while Boris Johnson has gone gone out to please people, northern voters who the Conservatives traditionally had difficulty in winning. He has lost the support of a lot of his natural supporters in the South, and that is causing difficulties and ructions uh, within the party. And of course, a week in politics is a long time. Nobody knows what will happen between now and the next general election, whenever it comes. It is also true that Keir Starmer, as leader of the Labour Party, is failing to make the impact that many of his followers had hoped he would make. Nonetheless, there are still a lot of difficulties ahead for the Conservatives. Uh, they've not handled the Russian invasion of Ukraine terribly well. 
they've been seen to be protecting some of the Russian oligarchs who donate money to Tory party coffers, bankroll their MPs, if you like. Uh, indeed, it's been said that it's easier for a Russian oligarch to enter the House of Lords than it is for a Ukrainian refugee to enter the United Kingdom. Uh, they are making mistakes in many areas, and that's the sign, I think, of a government that is tired and probably heading towards the end of its term in office. And a fractured Conservative Party is, is quite new. They've generally been at least decently good at, at, at holding together and presenting some sort of united front. Maybe that's why they're, they're so good at winning elections. Do you think that pot shots at Europe is still a winning election strategy? It seems like whenever he's having a bad week, Boris will, you know, create a dispute with, you know, the French about fisheries. Do you think that that's still a winning strategy or do you think voters are starting to see behind that? I think Boris Johnson believes that it still, still appeals to the Tory party constituency. Uh, and therefore perhaps helps to shore up his support. If you look at the opinion polls, generally people now believe that leaving the European Union was a mistake, not by a huge margin, but by a small margin. Uh, that does not translate into support for rejoining the European Union, but I think it does harm the government's position. You know, a number of businesses have found it terribly difficult uh, since we left the European Union. Investment is drying up. There are shortages of labor. There are still problems in Northern Ireland. And while you're right, the prime minister seems to feel it opportune uh, every so often to bash Johnny Foreigner, as uh, the English would say. I'm not sure that this is a strategy that gains him very much or will keep him in power. And then just uh, just very briefly to conclude, because we're because we're running out of time, looking at the other parties in Westminster, what do you think they can do? What can they do to get elected or what can they do to capitalize on these scandals? Well, as the judge, uh, Lord Hailsham, once famously said, the United Kingdom is an elective dictatorship. Uh, the opposition has really very little power. And it is said that uh, oppositions don't win elections, governments lose them. Nonetheless, it is clear that if the Conservatives are to be removed from office, then it cannot be done by one party alone. Uh, the opinion polls and the uh, voting system that we have, the same as Canada's system, uh, do not favour that. Uh, Keir Starmer, if he were to rule, would need to rule at the head of a coalition. The most obvious coalition for him uh, is between Labour and the Scottish National Party, though the price of that would almost certainly be to grant Scotland the right to hold another independence referendum. He might be able to cobble together a coalition of Labour plus the Liberal Democrats, plus perhaps the Ulster Unionists and the Welsh Nationalists, something along those lines. But it would be difficult to run a four-party coalition, and I would expect him to go for the easier option of a deal with the SNP, whatever the consequences for the long-term future of the United Kingdom. But then, of course, you have to recognize that Boris Johnson himself has put the long-term future of the United Kingdom in doubt 
by the kind of Brexit deal that he struck, uh, forcing Northern Ireland, if you like, to the very fringes of the United Kingdom and storing up resentment in Scotland. So there are these issues to be taken into account when looking at the United Kingdom after the next general election. So then just to conclude, Sir Keir Starmer, what, do you think he's up to the task? Do you think that he can bring Labour back to the promised land? I think there's no doubt that Keir Starmer is up to the task. Uh, he's a highly uh, educated and intelligent man. He has served the country eminently and for many years as the director of public prosecutions. He seems to be making a good fist of running the Labour Party. There's very little internal dissent at the moment. Uh, and I think he would make a, a more than adequate uh, prime minister. Uh, the question is, will the government continue uh, to make the kind of mistakes that it's been making that could let him into office? Well, I'm afraid that's all we have time for. Uh, Sir Graham Watson, thank you very much for joining us. You're very welcome. So today we're joined by Dr. Pat Thane from King's College London. Dr. Thane graduated in modern history from Oxford and then gained her PhD at London School of Economics in the Department of Social Science and Administration. She's currently a research professor in contemporary British history in the Department of Political Economy at King's College and is Professor Emerita of the University of London. She has held the role of visiting professor at several institutions around the world, including Nanjing University China, Kyoto University Japan, and Macquarie University Australia. Dr. Pat Thane's research interests include 20th century British social and political history on aspects of social policy, gender relations, and the history of the labor movement. Recent publications include Welfare in the State, Divided Kingdom, A History of Britain, 1900s to the Present, and Voluntary Action in the Welfare State, the National Council for the Unmarried Mother and Her Child. Good afternoon, Professor Thane. Thank you so much for joining me. Earlier this episode, my colleague discussed the Conservative Party with his guests. I was wondering if you would be able to give me an overview of the political parties on the other end of the spectrum. Who represents the British Centre and the left? The main opposition party is the Labour Party, which is has always been broadly between the centre and the left. It's always been a, a broad umbrella party. And then there's the Liberal Democrat Party, who are also, they're more a kind of centre party, but they're very much smaller these days. Now, in my research, I also came upon the Scottish National Party and the Democratic Unionist Party, would you be able to go and just give me a little bit of an overview of the platforms of the parties you mentioned, as well as the Scottish National Party and the Democratic Unionist Party quickly? Well, it's quite difficult because they've got very broad and complicated programs. And I think Labour and Social Down, the Liberal Democrats, have quite a lot in common in the sense they want to improve social welfare, housing, jobs. Um, in different ways, and also have great, a greater level of public ownership, probably. The Scottish National Party are, of course, dedicated to Scottish independence, to uh, the Scottish national identity. 
And they've also, they've actually really also been very progressive on social welfare issues. Um, but they don't have total independence. They're, they um, are still quite dependent on the British government in many areas of policy. And the democratic unionists are the Northern Ireland, essentially Protestant party. And Northern Ireland, of course, has been deeply divided between Protestants and Catholics. The democratic unionists have always had quite a close relationship with the Conservative Party and are somewhat to the right. So they've been, it was only very recently, for example, they legalized abortion, whereas it happened in England in 1967. And on issues of that sort, they've been really very slow to change. So I was wondering if you could possibly dive a little bit further into the Labour Party. I know that that's uh, one of your research interests and that is one of the more popular parties being the opposition to the current Conservative Party that's in power. What are some of the uh, biggest aspects of their platform and their appeal to voters? Um, well, their appeal to voters has been rather declining in recent years. <clears throat> and again, it has been because they've had a much more progressive social welfare policy. It was the Labour Party that set up a welfare state after 1945. That's been very seriously eroded under Conservative government since Margaret Thatcher in the 1980s. So improving that also improving work conditions. It was Labour in 1999 that introduced the first minimum wage. That's been uh, allowed to be overlooked by many employers. And I think if Labour were in government, <clears throat> they would do a lot to try to enforce it and to enforce better working conditions. Because at the moment, there are quite, there's a very serious problem of poverty in Britain and a high proportion of families in poverty have at least one parent in full-time work, but so low paid and insecure, they can't support their families. And that's something that really does need to change. Also, um, a greater commitment to public ownership. I mean, again, the post-45 government nationalized railways, coal, other industries. Um, that was, they were privatized by conservative governments. But it's They'd be even under conservatives, they've been effectively creeping back into public ownership because that, that's actually more efficient. So there's certainly a lot of support for stronger nationalization. But under its present leadership, Labour's rather cautious about openly committing to that. So you mentioned that the Labour Party has had a bit of a decrease in support in comparison to the Conservative Party. And I find that that really interesting as that kind of is in opposition to here in Canada. So perhaps if you have an opinion on why do you think it's so different? Why do you think there is less support for that idea of the welfare system uh, in the UK? Um, well, I think actually one reason why Labour lost support between the last election was the issue of exiting from the European Union. Uh, which Labour was on the whole opposed to, though there were divided views. Uh, but the Conservatives are very strongly committed to. 
And I think they did manage to persuade a lot of people that leaving Europe would be good for them. Uh, it's now becoming increasingly obvious that it, that it isn't, and um, their views may be changing. But that was really was a very important issue. I think on the welfare issue, although most people are very much in favour of things like the National Health Service, which most people benefit from, they have been rather battered by, particularly by the right-wing press and by conservative governments, <clears throat> with the belief that a lot of people on benefits are just idle, <clears throat> feckless loungers. And that the welfare system encourages that because that's been a consistent conservative line since Thatcher. It isn't true, well, because I've already said a high portion of people on welfare are actually in work, um, but the work is very low paid. But I think many people don't really understand that. They've also been encouraged to be quite, quite hostile to immig immigrants, blaming immigrants for shortage of housing, for example, which is definitely not their, their fault. So I, I think there's been quite a lot of distortion and misinformation, but exiting Brexit from Europe was a big issue. Um, so you mentioned a bit earlier that poverty has become a really uh, forceful issue within the UK, especially as it pertains to the Labour Party. Would you be able to discuss um, how the Labour Party has proposed to go about combating that issue? And perhaps has the Conservative Party mentioned how they would approach combating that issue? Oh, well, I don't think the Conservative Party takes it seriously. They always brush it aside. <clears throat> For example, at the end of 2018, uh, the UN Special Representative on Human Rights and severe poverty toured Britain and produced an excoriating report about how bad things were and about how it was the erosion of the welfare system that played a big part in it. And the Conservatives just brushed it aside. <clears throat> um, I'm not entirely clear actually what the current Labour Party's policies are, but I think part of it, as I said, is to give is to improve work conditions and pay. <clears throat> So we don't have this problem of people working hard for inadequate pay, but also reforming. The, and the trouble is the Conservatives a few years ago reformed the welfare system, put all um, benefits together into one package called universal credit. The UN representative called it universal discredit because it was so bad. And that's really, very poorly administered. So, for example, people after applying can have to wait for about five weeks before they get a benefit, which if they're already in very poor condition, just makes life worse. The other problem is that the cost of housing has gone up, rents have gone up, uh, rent controls were abolished by the Thatcher governments, and high housing costs, well, they're, they're causing a very high level of homelessness, just as poverty is causing an amazingly high level of use of food banks, which we hadn't heard of really before 2010, um, before the Conservatives came back into office. 
so uh, doing something to well they build more houses that affordable rents control rents um as well as provide housing and reform the welfare system so that it's it just treats people more fairly than the present one so obviously um over the past two years the pandemic has been a really influential issue when it comes to politics and the support for certain political parties. How do you think the COVID-19 pandemic has influenced um, the support for the Labour Party and the positions that the Labour Party has taken on issues such as uh, healthcare? Um, it's very hard to, I think it's probably has done something to increase support for the Labour Party. Um, because it's been seen to have been badly managed by the Conservatives, although it's hard to know how much. I guess it has made Labour rather more outspoken, even than it would have been in supporting the health service and provided, you know, arguing it needs more funding, for example, as it did receive under the, the last day of the government from 1997 to 2010. Um, and also the other thing that's been revealed by um, COVID is the terribly poor system of social care for older and disabled people. And that desperately needs, it's, it was outsourced as the Conservatives put it to private providers um, who really have not been doing a good job. And there's a great shortage of care workers because it becomes so stressful working in that sector during COVID that many of them have given up. And also our whole health and care system has been very dependent on immigrant labour, including from Europe. And many of them left when we left the EU, so weren't sure what was going to happen. So there are about 100,000 vacancies in the social care among social care workers and not very many applicants. So obviously doing something to improve that, to improve work conditions, pay in particular, uh, is important. So given that discrepancy of like the workers in the social care system and the healthcare system, do you think the public is aware of this discrepancy and that this might somehow translate to an increase in support for immigrants that are coming in, given that these are individuals that could fill those positions? Mm. It's very hard to tell how aware most people are uh, because you know, the right-wing press and social media don't talk about these things very much. I mean, I and people like me know a lot about it because we're interested in these topics. Sure. Um, so, so I'm not sure quite unless people are immediately involved if they've got you know older relatives um, who need to care and I think that kind of personal relationship has made more people aware of the problem but it's very hard to judge how widespread it is. Absolutely so given the importance that it seems that the right-wing press plays and helping decide UK citizens and their vote, is there a movement to recognize the bias that this right-wing press provides? Has the Labour Party openly addressed the problems that the right-wing press kind of passes over? 
Well, in the sense that there are Labour's in favour of the policy issues that I've mentioned, um, and the right wing present not. I don't think Labour is perhaps explicit enough in, say, defending people on, on welfare benefits against attacks of their idle shirkers. Um, so I think perhaps it isn't as directly addressed as it might be. But. For sure. And do you see in the near future that there might be an opportunity for the right wing press to be addressed? And do we see that other news sources, perhaps more centrist or left, are having an increasing in following or an increasing in legitimacy and recognition by the UK public? Uh, I don't know. There's been, I mean, in recent by-elections, the Liberal Democrats have done better and Labour's done better, even in previously Conservative seats, but there have only been a couple of those. Um, there was a by-election uh, yesterday in Birmingham, which, which Labour won. It was previously a Labour seat and Labour held it. There was a very low turnout, only 27%. So these things really are quite, there's not a, a huge shift going on, I, I would say. Um, but I mean, another thing that and many the people, or some people, at least in the Labour Party, are arguing for is more devolution, putting more power in the hands of local government to deal with local issues and also more funding because local government has massively lost funding since the 1980s. Uh, but I, I actually haven't seen the Labour leadership taking up that issue. But I know a lot of people support it. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. So to just slightly adjust our focus, regarding the Labour Party and their new leadership, how do you think um, Keir Starmer's new direction will pay off at the polls? Well, I mean, the, the, the opinion polls show that he is, um, I think he may be slightly ahead of Boris Johnson now, but not very far ahead. I don't get the impression he makes a very big impact. He's too sort of rhetorical and generalized rather than presenting you know, firm policies to people. Uh, you know, he talks about respecting people and patriotism, which well, they're okay, but they don't come over very strongly to people. So I, I don't get a sense that he's being very effective. Also, the Labour is the polls against show that the Labour is that the Conservatives are trusted better to run the economy, which is crazy when the economy is not doing very well and they would be better. But Labour hasn't been very good at promoting its competence at running the economy. Given recent news regarding uh, certain events mm. that occurred during uh, the pandemic, do you think that Starmer has? been able to capitalize on this in a way that might pay off at the polls? Or do you think that something could be done to increase support for the Labour Party? Well, he's been going, I mean, the party's been going up in the polls as, as this, this has been going on. Um, so I still don't feel absolutely certain that they do very well. 
And I think he, he needs to be much more forthcoming about policies. I do think it's a great weakness that he isn't. Of course, a great problem Labour has is that it's lost most of its seats in Scotland since the Scottish Nationalists have taken over. First the Conservatives and then Labour lost their seats. And Labour had a lot of seats in Scotland and it has weakened its prospects in the polls to have lost them. Um, and it's very hard to see how they'll get them back. So that is a, a quite serious weakness that's hard to overcome. So I think this is bringing us uh, close to the end of the interview. I just have one final question for you. So regarding the current context of international relations and the possible conclusion of the pandemic along with the crisis in Ukraine, what direction do you see British politics going towards in the new, near future? And if you'd like to uh, focus a bit on the Labour Party. Again, I, I don't see any great change. I mean, the international, this terrible war in the Ukraine, I don't see this having a very profound effect. I mean, in fact, Keir Starmer has been supporting the government in its opposition to the war and supporting NATO. Um, and attacking those more left-wing members of the Labour Party, who, who in fact are also against the war. So I'm not, I, th I think he's rather overdoing his hostility to them. Um, and I don't see any sort of clear change in direction in, in either party, really. Um, no. I'm nothing very striking. <laughs> well, that brings us to the end of the interview. I wanted to thank you so much for meeting with me today and informing us on British politics and the centre and the left. I really appreciated your time today, Professor. Okay, thank you. I hope it was helpful. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Once again, that was Dr. Pat Thane. You have been listening to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. Many thanks to our guests for joining us to discuss the state of British politics. Today's show was produced by Elliot Simpson and Annabelle McRae. The views expressed on the show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, CIUT, or the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. If you missed any part of the show, be sure to check out podcasts of all our episodes on our website at www.beyondtheheadlines.net as well as on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you're a fan of our show or want to stay up to date with policy issues in Canada, follow us on Twitter at beyond underscore headlines. You can also check us out on Facebook and Instagram. Be sure to tune in next week as we continue to take public policy discussions out of the hallways and onto the airwaves.